This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. So many years ago, I was a pastoral intern at a large church in South Minneapolis. I was completely over my head, completely incompetent, completely insecure, and scared to death. The senior pastor of the church was a guy named C. Philip Heinerman. We called him Doc for short. He was a legend in South Minneapolis. He was at that church for over 35 years. He mentored and trained hundreds of young men and women in ministry and marketplace leadership all across the city, all across the, across the Twin Cities. Uh, one day in my, early in my um, time as the trainee, I was walking down the hallway and Doc was walking towards me, just the two of us, and I was scared to death. And Doc did this. He looked at me and he waved his arm and he said, Oh, hail, great one. And I looked behind me and there was nobody behind me. Apparently he's talking to me. And he said, great one, Matthew Woodley. You will do great things for the Lord and his kingdom. And that is one reason among many that Doc became my hero because he was a man of incredible encouragement and he saw talent where there was no talent. And I'm grateful for that. Doc was also a man of incredible courage. He led a church in South Minneapolis, which at the time was, was beginning to change demographically and racially. And Doc said, our church is going to reflect the community that we're, we're, we're in. And so we are going to be a black church and a white church, and we're going to do worship together. And he started doing that. And he said, I grew the church from 1,400 people to 700 people with that decision. People started leaving. People fled to the suburbs. They didn't want to be part of this. But then the church turned around, and it began to flourish, and it began to grow. And blacks and whites began worshiping together just about three blocks where George Floyd was killed back in the 70s and 80s and 90s under the leadership of Doc. Doc was a man of God. Doc was a rock. Doc was my hero. So after a while, I went up to Barnum, Minnesota to hang out with the Finnefrox. It's not the frickin' Frax, it's the Finnefrox. And Doc moved to North Carolina and he started pastoring in his last church. And in that last church, they chewed him up and they spit him out and they fired him. And he left that church in just an utter, under a cloud of mistrust. And he was a broken man. And he called me one day and I heard in his voice something I had never, ever heard in Doc. Discouragement, dismay, not despair. He'd not given up his faith in the Lord Jesus, not at all. But he was demoralized, and he seemed defeated. And that shattered me, because I thought, if that can happen to Doc, it can happen to anyone. And actually, it happens to some of the best and brightest followers of Jesus, like John the Baptist we're going to see in this passage. And if you think, this is never going to happen to me, this will never happen to him, it'll never happen to her, let me just say, you are underestimating what life can take from you, what suffering can do, what grief can wring from your heart. You're underestimating it. The Bible says that Satan came to steal and kill and destroy. And one thing you can say about Satan, he's really busy stealing and killing and destroying. And maybe he's stolen something from you. He's robbed something from you, some joy, some contentment, some peace, a sense of health, a sense of safety. 
a sense of just faith in the Lord. So what does Jesus do? How does Jesus treat someone that's in this day or week or month of discouragement? Well, turn with me to our gospel text on page 816 because we're going to look at a case study in John the Baptist. And John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11, you'll notice in verse 2, where is he? He's in prison. How did he get in prison? Well, you flip forward to chapter 14, we see that there was a a political leader named Herod, a very powerful man, a very influential man, but also corrupt. And John the Baptist was just one of these people who just could not help himself. When he saw um, political corruption, when he saw religious hypocrisy, especially among the powerful, among the elite, he just could not keep his mouth shut. So Herod was having an affair with his brother's wife, and John the Baptist said, ah, you can't do that. That's wrong. That's what we call adultery in my tradition, and that's just not right. And for that, Herod had him thrown in prison. And so he's in prison, and his life changed. Now remember, John the Baptist spent most of his life outdoors, in deserts, by streams, listening to birds, eating and finding and eating wild hunting. He was an outdoorsy kind of guy. His, his clothing was outdoorsy, and now he's in prison. He used to be around crowds of people, and now he's alone, and it's dark, and it's damp, and it's cold, and there's no bird songs, and there's no wild honey, and he's lonely. This is not the way his life was supposed to wake out, work out. You ever feel that way? God, I thought we had a plan together, and you have now ruined the plan. You're not following the script I thought we both agreed on. Chapter 11, verse 3. So John sends some of his disciples and says to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? It is such a heart-rendingly sad question. Are you the one? It's so sad because John knew he was the one. At one time he did. Back in chapter 3, he says, I baptize with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me, the one, is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the Messiah, the one who's going to heal all things, who's going to judge and make things right, and he's going to start now with a bang. He's going to burn the chaff with an unquenchable fire. But now he's wondering, are you the one? Jesus is not acting the way he, John thought the Messiah should be acting. He's not burning the chaff with unquenchable fire. Not yet. He's not judging the wicked. Not yet. Instead, he's calling people, ordinary men and people, ordinary men and women, broken men and women, to himself to come to faith in him. So back to my question, what does John do? Or what does Jesus do for John? What does he do for us when we're discouraged, when we're shaken, when our faith feels weak. Well, it's summed up in one word, gospel. Gospel, gospel, gospel. That's what Jesus was all about. Get this. Get 
the gospel. Get it into you. Be gotten by it, by the person of Jesus. Be united with him. Let him be united with him. Be embraced by him. Let me look at a couple of things. What is the gospel? And who is it for? Two very important questions that Jesus is going to unwrap in these potent two verses, just two verses, verses four and five. What is the gospel? This is not the entire gospel. This is a, just part of the, what we could call the gospel, but it's an important part of it. It's a crucial part of it. Verses four and five, Jesus gives a clue in words that, that John would understand, and he's, he's drawing from Isaiah 35. He's drawing from Psalm 146. He's drawing from Isaiah 61. This, in these little two verses, Jesus is taking Scripture from all over the Bible, and he's drawing it together with a brilliant interpretive mood, move. Jesus knew his Bible, and he loved his Bible, and he tied it all together. And what does he say? He says, this is the gospel. Go tell John what you hear and see. The gospel is happening. It's working. It's moving. And here's what it looks like. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Six conditions. And each one of those has a physical reality and a spiritual reality. So, for instance, there is a physical blindness. People who are visually impaired cannot see, either by disease or by birth. And there is a spiritual reality of spiritual blindness, that people do not see the glory of God. They do not see their own sinfulness. They do not see their own need for grace. And maybe they see their sinfulness, but they don't see the hope of salvation and forgiveness. So physical and spiritual. There is both. But the gospel is the place, the gospel is the news of how God in Jesus breaks into those places of physical and spiritual brokenness. The gospel is the place where the risen Jesus breaks into our lives. It's like a window that's cracked open so the fresh breeze of the Holy Spirit can go into your life, into your house. So the gospel is the news that we can be justified by faith in Jesus. Apart from our works of righteousness, we are justified by faith, and we stand in that grace, but it's even more than that. It is the power of God to salvation, St. Paul tells us, to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. It's the power of God to come into a life and to begin to restore it, to repair it. And as St. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, so that we... Beholding Jesus, we are transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. Step by step, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly, the living God meets us in those places of human brokenness, the physical or spiritual. He touches us, and some of the healing is in this life. Some of the healing starts in this life. Some of the healing is completed in eternal life. And we don't always control that, but we know that Christ is available. That is the good news of the gospel. Who is it for? And this is really important. So those six categories of people in verses 4 and 5, 
the, the blind, the, the lame, the lepers, the deaf, the dead, and the poor. What do they all have in common? Well, one thing that they all have in common is that they are all ways, indicators of human beings that are powerless to fix themselves. You cannot raise yourself from the dead. You cannot do that. These are all ways in which we can be broken for which we don't have the remedy. So the gospel is for people who have come to the end of the myth that I am in control of my own life, that I can fix my own life, that I am in charge of my own life, that I don't need a savior or redeemer. I do. The gospel is for people who have come into the freedom of knowing that. Now, if you look at these categories, I have to be honest, for many of us, as semi-successful, middle-class people who have sort of made it in life, we look at that list and go, yeah, I can see a lot of people, but I'm not one of those people, am I? I don't think so. I don't think I'm one of those people. I love the quote from a really famous TED Talk given by Brene Brown, who said this. She said, we are those people, in quotes, she puts. Most of us are one paycheck, one divorce, one drug-addicted kid, one mental health diagnosis, one serious illness, one assault, or one affair from being one of those people. The ones we don't trust, the ones we pity, the ones we don't want living next door. The gospel is for those people, for us. Let me give it, just dive deep into one of these things on Jesus' list of six. It's the last one, and it says, and the poor have good news preached to them. That's actually from Isaiah chapter 61, which Jesus pulls from, so he's pulling from Isaiah 35, Psalm 146, Isaiah 61. That's from Isaiah 61. And honestly, it doesn't sound that impressive. It does not sound like as impressive as, you know, a dead person getting raised to life, the poor getting the good news preached to them. But for Jesus, it's really significant. It is the beginning of a revolution that will change the world that's still going on. The fact that the poor, the little, the unseen, the beaten down, the trafficked, those displaced by war, those uh, unjustly imprisoned, abused children, unborn children, children impacted by disabilities, children orphaned, are now noticed and loved and cherished and embraced into the Christian community. That is good news. People often overlooked, sometimes scorned, sometimes excluded. The good news is preached to those people. And we see this today all around the globe. Sometimes here in America, we, we wring our hands and we, we lament that not as many people are going to church or the rise of the nuns, the spiritual nuns, the people that are, have no religious affiliation, and we think, well, that's really bad, and we're really uptight about that. And it's like, yeah, that's, that's a challenge. But you know what? Around the globe... 
In many places of the world, that's not what's happening with the church. It's actually the opposite. The church is growing. The church is burgeoning. The poor are hearing the good news preached, and they're receiving it and being transformed by it. But also, remember, there's a spiritual component. So blessed are the spiritually poor. It's also for them, people with baggage from their past, people with an addiction from the, in the present, people with a hurt that they can't get over, people that are carrying resentments, people that are completely apathetic about their faith and don't know how to keep, get moving forward. They're, they're, they're just stuck and paralyzed spiritually. People who wake up Sunday morning and they don't have an option whether they're going to come to church or not because they have to come. They need to come. They're hungry. They're going to, they're going to starve. They're going to, something's going to be missing if they don't show up, if they can come. The good news is preached to those people. That is revolutionary. So Jesus is comparing two kinds of religion, two approaches. One is what we might call the religion of self-justification, self-salvation, which always, 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 it's inevitable, leads to self-righteousness. You will always look down on the people with that religion. Another religion, which is Jesus' salvation, being justified by grace through the mercy of God, which leads to love, humility, brokenness, patience with people who are fellow sinners like you. So if the first one, if you've ever seen um, Les Mis or read the Victor Hugo novel based on Les Mis, you, you know the characters. Javert represents the first religion. It's a religion of law. It's a religion of condemnation. It's a religion of despair. It's a religion of no hope. I mean, the law is good, but the way Javert um, enforces the law is it kills. And the religion of Jesus is the religion that Jean Valjean found through the bishop when he met the bishop and he was given the candlesticks and the bishop says, your soul is bought for God and prisoner 24601 becomes the mayor of the town. The gospel is any prisoner 24601 can become a mayor. That's the gospel. That's our life. That's our story. Now, talking about what is the gospel, who is it for, there is a warning here, though. We've got to add something, because you might say, well, that sounds too easy, too easy. You just say, Jesus, here I am. Save me. Forgive me. And is it that easy? Well, in a way, yes. In a way, no. Because look at this warning that Jesus gives in verse 6. He says, and tell John, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Literally, blessed is the one who doesn't stumble over me. Now, Jesus is so nice. Why would anybody be offended by him? Have you ever been offended by Jesus? I have all the time. I find him quite offensive to what I want to do and how I want to live my life. So the first words out of his mouth are, repent and believe the gospel. Repent. God loves you. You're justified by faith. But God loves you so much, he doesn't want to leave you where you are. He wants to change you. And all through that slow and arduous process of transformation, he still loves you, but he still calls you to repentance. That can be offensive. Jesus said some offensive things about loving our enemies, forgiving our enemies. He said some offensive things about his own authority. All authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection of life. If you want to get through death, 
I'm the only one that can help you with that. Nobody else can help you with that. That can be offensive. So he wants us to examine, are we one of those people that is open to God's grace? Are we one of those people who know we need it? Or are we stumbling over Jesus? Do we have a cheap grace? A cheap grace that we believe in Jesus, but without any repentance, without any sorrow over our sin. Jesus, I believe, wants John the Baptist and you and me to get back to the gospel because that's where transformation takes place. In the 1800s in England, there was a politician who did more to abolish the slave trade in England than any other politician in English history. His name was William Wilberforce. I'm not going to tell his story because I want to tell the story about the man who did the most to encourage, to challenge Wilberforce to stay in politics and to fight this fight of abolition and freedom for slaves. That man's name was John Newton. John Newton, many of you know, wrote a little ditty, a little hymn at the time that nobody really much cared for, for about 100 years, seriously. It was not a great hymn back then. It's called Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. He wrote that hymn. It was a story of his life. See, because before he was a champion of abolitionism, Before he was mentoring and equipping young leaders to fight that fight, he himself was a cruel and vicious slave trader for years. He had a powerful encounter with the Lord Jesus. He repented of some of his sins. Oddly enough, he never repented. He didn't, not never, but he didn't at the time repent of the sin of slave trading using and abusing and selling human beings. Five years later, he finally gave up slave trading. It took him longer to denounce what he had done as a slave trader. But once the light came on, once his blind heart could see what he had done, once he really got it, there was profound and deep repentance. And as people will tell you in any 12-step program, he he lived a life of amends. Like, I'm going to make amends. I'm not just going to say I'm forgiven. I'm going to live a life of amends, not to gain forgiveness, but because he was forgiven. And out of that forgiveness, to live a life of mercy and grace towards others. At one point he said, it will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. On his tombstone, there are the following words. John Newton, once an infidel and a libertine, by the rich mercy of our Lord Jesus, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. Now, if this is true, if it's not true, we should just all go home because you don't have any gospel. I don't have any gospel. I should get a different job. We should all just stay home, eat bagels, you know? Um, Seriously. But if it is true, it changes everything. 
I came here 12 years ago, and honestly, I did not know if I really believed it or not. And then I came to Church of the Resurrection, and I met people like Bishop Stewart, who seemed to be crazy over the top in his belief that this was true. He was like, and I, and I thought, I think I've heard this somewhere before. It's like Doc all over again. And I met so many of you who believed it intensely, so intensely that it scared me. Like some of you all scared me when I first started coming here. I mean, it was like scary. But then I realized I want to be in a place where people believe it, and they believe it this intensely. I don't want to be anywhere else. We're not the only church in the world that does that, but we are one. We want to be one. We're becoming one. We have been one. We want to continue to be one. You see, if you can become a new creation, transform from one image of glory to the next, that God loves you through that whole messy process of transformation, it's not like his love turns off and on as you're transformed or not. It's just, it's steady, it's underneath. If that's true, then it is worth believing. It's worth living for. It's worth dying for. It's worth giving time and money. It's worth serving and risking and going. And the very first thing that I would like us all to do is to begin by start by applying it to your own heart that this is for you, that God is for you, not against you, in Christ Jesus, that he who gave up his only son, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? That's the good news of the gospel. And not only does God, in his goodness and his sheer goodness and mercy, he not only wants us to believe it with our mind, but he gives us tangible, sacramental, experiences and reminders in the baptismal font and around the Eucharistic table. And he says, eat and drink, taste and see that the Lord is good. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.